Cast. Uh, Resby's here, but he's, uh, well, he's a family man. I've told you all that many times. He's taking care of the family right now, and he'll join us. Uh, but we've got, um, well, we just couldn't find a guest, and we we found this guy who, um, he's been on a time or two before, uh, and that would be Dr. Clark of Escondido. How are you, doctor? I'm well. How are you? Uh, we're fine. Is it uh, is it warm out there? It was today. I haven't actually looked to see what the temperature is recently. It's been really nice the last few days, actually. It was hot, and it became a little more civilized. It's not supposed to be too bad this week, but all my weather apps have gone to pot. I don't, I don't not well, even sure well, where to That's go. California for you. <laughs> yeah, everything's gone to pot in California. Oh, uh, there they are. Well, it's uh, mid nineties here most days. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, no, it's it's seventy five now. Oh wow. Well, that's and, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. No, yep. that's not bad. And high of eighty seven, and low tonight sixty degrees. About four o'clock this morning. Hmm. Well, um, any other updates from the from the left coast? It's crazy out here. Uh, we're we're locked down again, not entirely, but but considerably. We're we can't meet for indoors for public worship. We have a beautiful brand new facility sitting there that we cannot now use. Uh, so Sunday we were out under a tent. We had a tent meeting. No no uh, no altar call and nobody rolling on the ground or anything like that. But no one uh, uh, no one took a running fit. As they say, <laughs> nobody took a running fit. No, nobody running around in circles. Um, yeah, that one um, I can understand. You know, the the glossolalia and tongues. It's wrong. You know, shandala is not tongues. Uh, so, if the listener viewer is confused about that, it's not. But uh, I can at least understand why people might think that. But for the life of me, I have no idea where in the Book of Acts or First Corinthians we might get the gift of running in circles. Well, you, it culminates sometimes in a, um, you know, uh, diving headlong into the baptistry. <laughs> you, you've, yeah, they, you've seen that. They, they invented uh, moshing, right? Oh yeah, that's sploshing. <laughs> yeah, and they throw, they roll their sport coats up and throw them, and uh, there's always some some uh, virtuous woman on the front row that picks all that stuff up. So, so is this is this an IFB thing? Because I don't remember this from the the my experiences, my limited experience with the AOG. This must be an IFB sort of thing. Yeah, it's a men only thing, too. What 
What? So I don't get how I get how a person could be an independent fundamentalist Baptist, but I would think they would be sort of locked down and restrained. I mean, when I was uh, at Southview Baptist Church, there was no running around. You know, we were fairly we were SBC, uh, and there were some Pentecostal charismatic influences, but um, I don't remember anybody running around. Yeah. If you wanted to roll on the floor, you had to be AOG or something like that. Yeah, most IFB guys would uh, would deride Pentecostals, but they, they like to go right up to the line. And uh, <laughs> I don't see. As yeah. with everything else, they've made rules that are more or less unwritten, and uh, most people know them. And Lord have mercy on you if you don't. You break the rules. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, well, that's the power of unwritten rules. Right. It, it's the point of unwritten rules is to give you power over the people that, that don't know them. And you can use them to convict them. Well, Resby's dropped out for a minute, but he'll be back. He's attending to family business. and um, so, so is the video of this broadcast public? I'm sorry to ask such an ignorant question. Yeah, yeah everybody can see your Jeep, your Jeep hat. <laughs> All right. So where um, is the link that I see in my browser? Is that where I would send people, where I just send them? Um, not the one I sent you to join. Okay. You can find it on Twitter. On uh, Twitter, right? Yeah, yeah. It, right. it's it's up there. Resby, are you with us? Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, you sound you sound better too than you did earlier. We were we were hearing your discussion with your son. Yeah, uh, luckily you didn't hear all of it. <laughs> well, he's named after a reformer, one of them. So he is. I did catch that. Well, so we've had our weather report and all that sort of thing, and uh, we've talked about Baptist already. So while uh, oh good, so we can we can just wrap up now. <laughs> well, we haven't done fun with Baptist yet, but I, I do have something. Um, it's uh, sort of sort of leads into our topic, I guess, more or less. But uh, I don't know if you caught this, but uh, Doctor Clark's church has been uh, worshiping in the big top. Yeah, I did. That was one of the last things I heard. And it's not going to be U- United Reformed Churches. It's going to be United Revival Churches from now on. <laughs> well, it's you know, it's like the Premier Cigar Association. You don't even have to change the acronym. You can just it's like United States of Amazon. You can, it can still be USA. There you go. Well, any uh, any news or updates on anything else, Doctor Clark? Uh, no, I don't have Corona as far as I know. So I, um, I'm happy about that. How about seminary for the fall? That is a great question. And, and I, I don't know anybody who knows the answer as to what exactly is going to take place. It, um, yeah, I wish I could tell you, um, it, uh, we're, we're, we're waiting on the, uh, we're, we're yeah we're waiting on uh, the state of California to uh, tell us what we can and can't do. So it uh, <clears throat> if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I, I would have said you know almost certainly we'll have in person classes, and I'm hoping that I, everybody wants to do that, and we think we can do it safely. And uh, so we'll see. It uh, <clears throat> they they shut us down, uh, shut down uh, the church and uh, barber shops and. I don't know what else. Um, 
So it's uh, stores are seem mostly to be open. So it's not the it's not the sort of phase, phase one shutdown where ev- everything was done. Everything was, um, you know, we were sort of locked in our houses. It's not that, but um, they don't want people, um, um, what singing or chanting or saying the Apostles' Creed in the same direction. Uh, you're you're allowed to scream and yell and throw things and burn things and scream at cops and uh, all that that's fine that you that that part of the constitution is still in force but but well, um, if you thought about staging an anti-catholic uh, <laughs> demonstration yeah we need to put a sign up saying we we are protesting uh, romanism and um we're, we're doing it at uh, uh, 8:30 in the morning and 7 o'clock at night in an, in an no, orderly, nur- no nursery provided. Yeah, decently and orderly, but uh, yeah, no screaming. So I don't know. It's a it, it's it's a strange and weird time. I was going to say wonderful, but and I, there's a sense in which that would be true, but not in the sense in which people usually usually use that. Well, what do you think about my idea that some people find? Oh, um, yeah, they was the state the state slogan. Oh, you dropped out, Resby. Slogan. West Virginia, wild, wonderful. See, there, there's your tongues right there. Well, yes. It may not be on the show tonight. Yeah, Re- Resby Headroom, we'll call him. Um, so, <laughs> Is wh- he old enough to get that reference? That's no, a great uh, reference. He, he, <laughs> he knows all pop culture. Uh, Resby Headroom, uh, that's a great reference. <laughs> I like that very much. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're asking. We're nearly the same. We're nearly the same age. It's yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, what do you think about my idea that that some people are just um, they find this uh, this sec- secular apocalypse is just sort of uh, exhilarating to them? You know. Oh, I, mean, I think that's right. When I was a newspaper reporter, I used to uh, a photographer. I would sit around on Saturday nights hoping something terrible happened. Oh, well, yeah, I was a news junkie. I mean, you know, I was a among the many things I did in, in radio was um, to do the news. And um, so when I wasn't so one station I worked at, you did three hours on the air and then three hours in the newsroom. And um, while you're working in the newsroom, you're also babysitting the the automated FM station. So that tells you how long ago that was. And uh you know the giant ten-inch reels and, and all of that stuff, and uh, you know you're always checking the the. I was always checking the newswire, you know, looking for something interesting to do in the newscast. And you know the old maxim: if it bleeds, it leads, and that's absolutely the case, you know. Uh, and uh, it, you know you weren't wishing ill. On, I wasn't wishing ill on anyone, but uh, but something to talk about in the news was better than nothing to talk about in the news. Uh, do you, do you remember the Andy Griffith episode where uh, Barney was ex- was feeling these uh, he was feeling these feelings, uh, wanting something to happen, and he said, uh, <laughs> "If somebody would just kill somebody," and, and Andy chastised him. He said, "Well, nobody we know, just somebody passing somebody passing through that was going to do it that was going to do it anyway. Just let him do it here. That's yes, right. that, was, that was that was it." <laughs> But the problem is, everybody's doing this thing everywhere, and uh, exactly. that's our problem. Well, and law enforcement really does refer to to uh, anybody who carries a single, you know, a, a, 
refers to a single bullet as a Barney Fife round. So it's that's a that is a a a, a meme uh, in law enforcement circles. Yeah. So it, it uh, yeah we I used to work the phones, um, collecting information, looking for news stories, and um, I've always been kind of a news junkie. So the internet's been very bad for me. Uh, and especially Twitter, it's it's the crack cocaine of of information. You know, all you have to do, you log on, and you get a hit of some stupid controversy or or whatever. It is uh, Twitter really is crack. It, uh, it, it well, thank thank goodness for thoughtful, um, really area, good too. <laughs> dot long form um, idea based pro- programming such as Presbycast. Yeah, man. Amen. And the Heidelblock cast if it was longer. Yeah. Well, it. Yeah, I'm. I'm doing fifty fifty nine minutes now. So I'm. I've in the last. I don't know how many episodes. They've all tended to run about fifty nine minutes. I can't. If I do more than fifty nine minutes, it gets complicated to upload it, and it's a pain in the neck. So that's a good cutoff. Um, it's interesting. I when I started uh, doing podcasts and that don't even exist anymore. I did some really awful podcasts early on uh, in 2006, just as an experiment. And um, I thought, sure, nobody would want to listen to anything more than, you know, seven minutes. So they were very short. And then when I started the Heidelcast, the early ones were 10, 11, 12, you know, 15 minutes. And then for a long time, I, I stopped at 30 minutes. And then um, in recent years, I discovered that people like to listen to these long podcasts. So I started doing, well, you guys do uh, 90 minutes pretty regularly, right? Half a Rogan, you call it. That's right. And uh, um, and, several, and you're not alone. So that, that was interesting to me because, uh, you know, in, in radio, it was always light, tight, and bright. Huh. And, um, and podcasting can be light. It's rarely tight. And occasionally bright. <laughs> we're going to plead the so, fifth. We're going to plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> well, the bright had nothing to do with intelligence. It had to do with smiling. Okay. That's what that was. No, you you were supposed to smile because people can hear it in your voice. Good morning, everybody. I had a boss that used to talk like that. Oh boy, really nice guy, and he talked like that all the time. Mm. He'd been doing it for so long that he. Uh, I'd come in, and there he. I won't say who it is because he's a really nice guy. <laughs> Uh, and I'd I'd come into this the station and I'd see him and and he'd say hey there Scott Clark and, and I'd say you know hey there so and so and he he'd look at me like what why why are you talking like that he had he had been doing it so long he wasn't conscious well, when his wife eventually killed him how many years did she get <laughs> I don't know you know I've I've searched for him and I don't know what happened to him no, he was a, no one he does. Was a, yeah. <laughs> he was a genuinely nice guy. So I I don't uh, I don't know. Uh, he broke that was the the first thing that I was taught uh, by Don Crawley who went on to become a very successful programmer in Kansas City. He was the guy who first taught me the business. He and Scott Campbell who who was the pioneer of contemporary Christian radio. Mm. He's the Scott Campbell of the um Scott Campbell award uh, given out by the uh, whatever it is, the Con- Contemporary Christian Music Awards. So every year they give out the Scott Campbell Award. So it was he, and they both drilled me, drilled into me, you know, no puking. 
it, it was called. I'm right. sorry, that, that was the term. No, the, Ron Radio. I think they called the CCM uh, the awards the squ- the squinties. <laughs> the squinties. You can't play yeah. or sing it without squinting. <laughs> well, here. That could be. So while we're, maybe Rusby will get his uh, connection sorted out. I've got some contemporary Christian music for you. Um, okay. It mentions... Um, it mentions email, so it's very uh, with it. It's performed by young people. <laughs> um, so let's hear this. This is current events, and, um, you know, we've all got our cancel culture, which we're going to talk about. So let's um, well, let's hear about the, uh, the barn and the farmyard. Westminster Seminary, California students, but they (laughs) could have been from Bakersfield, though. More more likely Upper East Tennessee. She wasn't wrong. I mean... No, 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 actually. um, Yeah. And I I think it was a kind of a a midweek revival service, so it wasn't (laughs) as inappropriate as it would have been on Sunday morning. Yeah. But, you you know, nature is a thing. And uh, it, it, I don't know with whom I was talking, uh, um, but it was on the phone, and I was talking with somebody about the importance of, of recovering. Uh, oh, I know, I know who it was, one of our graduates. He's up in San Francisco, or in the Bay Area. 
And um, we were talking about, um, obviously, a lot of people in the Bay Area don't any longer have any grasp of what nature is. But he was talking about people in the church who don't have any concept of nature, any concept of creation. And this is a thing, you know, that I've been interested in for a long time. This was um, something I talk about with my students all the time. Um, you know, they our students come in uh, with um, either an Anabaptist view of nature and grace, so that grace wipes out nature. Um, sometimes they come with a medieval or Roman view of nature and grace, where grace perfects nature you know, on our way up the, the ladder of being. Um, and uh, and I talk to them about it very plainly, that there's a Reformed view, a Protestant view of nature and grace, and that, first of all, you have to have the two categories. You have to have a category for nature. You have to have a place to put creation and creational notions and norms and givens and um, and nature. And, and I think we're, in a sense, having dispensed with nature as a category, we're, we're reaping the, the whirlwind, not just culturally, but but especially in the church. And now that the culture is not going to sort of reinforce our, uh, any notion of nature, we're going to have to be very clear and explicit about it. And um, I you know I, I, young people come to me all the time. They come to school. That's what I mean when I say come to me. I, when I get them the, in the first year in the ancient church class, they don't, some of them have any clear sense that, um, the, as I say, the, the world was made to be known and you were made to know it. And that there are fixed things in the world that are not arbitrary conventions, that, uh, you know, constructions that need to be deconstructed. Because in their, for their whole education, they've been taught that everything is an arbitrary construction that needs to be deconstructed. And so I talked to him about the clock tower. There's a clock tower about 25 yards from the door of the classroom where I typically am. And I always say, this is a thought experiment. It's only a thought experiment. If this were an actual emergency, you know. Uh, you need to come and see me. But th- this is this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. And um, if were you, as a thought experiment, to climb to the top of the clock tower and launch yourself, you could identify as a bird all the way to the ground. But certain things are inevitable. Things are going to happen, and that's built into the nature of things. And if if that's that's nature, that's not a convention. And um, anyway, so it's. I've been told I shouldn't say what that what that gal was saying that um, you know go to the farm, but I have and I nobody has explained to me why I shouldn't say it, and so I keep saying it. <laughs> I mean, well, I, if you sing it, you want to stay on key a little more. Okay. <laughs> than they did. That's all I was. Well, that's saying. part of the part of the genre, right? Um, sort of uh, could be yeah, uh, bending some of the notes and not quite being on key all the time. Well, it 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 aids earnestness, I think. Yeah, it's it's folksy. Right. I'm, I'm not saying you could get get away with that in Nashville, but but at a Wednesday night. Uh, well, they nearly do. They nearly do. Yeah. Not a so lot. It, not a lot of talent. <laughs> but, yeah. So but she wasn't wrong. We want to talk about cancel culture um yeah but first i want to um speaking uh, of things which are trying to cancel all right you're here resby is with us very good yep (laughs) it was almost going to be it was almost going to be a theologically rich episode but i snatched victory from the jaws of defeat 
Sylvia wants to know if this is what the religious kids get to hear when their parents don't sign the permission slip for sex. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She's one of my favorites. Joshua says that sounded like the country bear jamboree at Walt Disney World. Classy show. I haven't been to Walt Disney World and I haven't been to Disneyland for a long time. See it while you can. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're a, you're a, we're going to play stump the historian now, doctor. That's easy. I I came across something. This uh, is actually a. Um, gosh, I was probably uh, I probably clicked on a link that our friend Daryl Hart posted about something Catholic, and oh. uh, so you got to be careful about some of those links. <laughs> Make sure you're using. <laughs> Your, your, you check your settings and clear your cache, but carry on. Well, well somewhere I saw a, a link to something about the uh, the 40 martyrs of Tazacorte, um, uh-huh. 40 Jesuits or Jesuits and their hangers-on uh, assistants, uh, uh, trainee Jesuits back in the uh, 16th century who were, um, well, they were put to the sword and dumped into the ocean near Brazil, Canary Islands. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By a Calvinist pirate. Uh, his name is Jacques de Sores, or Jacques Soury, some people call him. Uh, he was, a uh, again, a French Huguenot, a Calvinist. And um, the hint that he took, well, there were a lot of French pirates back then, but um, the hint that he was maybe a... Um, a real Calvinist was that uh, he singled out the Jesuits and got rid of them. And um, when he uh, when he burned Havana, uh, sacked Havana and burned Havana, he took the time before he uh, left the harbor to put on a uh, a play that they said was insulting to the Pope. So he staged a little uh, little entertainment, little anti papist entertainment. Um, who knew that there were Huguenot pirates? And um, and that they were actually the precursors of what we would call the pirates of the Caribbean. They sort of uh, set the standard. These were privateers. They were under. They had they had um, orders from the King of France. He may have been pers- persecuting the Huguenots on the ground, but was happy to use these uh, French Calvinist sailors against their um, arch enemies, uh, the Inquisitorious. Um, Spanish papist. Yeah, inqu- inquisitorious. Yes. I just made that word up, inquisitorious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that was totally made up. So, um, you know, I, I thought there, there's someone that, that, that we would all want to cancel, maybe. But then I, but then I thought is, uh, is a, um, is a Huguenot pirate in the 16th century with orders and a commission from the civil magistrate, the king himself, is is he just um, is he just fulfilling his vocation there? That was a question I had for you. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> no mind, no mind, no minds in this field. Uh, well, they're a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, musée. Uh, Protestant. Oh, I can put it. I can put that on the. Uh, I can put that on the screen right now. Well, there's a nice article about Jean Florent, Jean Florent, or Fleury, uh, captain of the Corsair fleet, 
So yeah, the the moral question would be: Is it legitimate for uh, someone to act on behalf under the authority of this of the civil magistrate in uh, in a piratical manner, or to conduct uh, asymmetrical warfare against uh, another nation? And, and yeah, that's an interesting question. And it's one to which I've given no thought. So <laughs> well, I'm, really, well, they, I'm reluctant to comment on it. And that doesn't usually stop me. But Well, they were basically uh, mercenaries, though. Yeah. Yeah, and their their pay was what, you know, a percentage of what they could take. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess it would depend on the on the ends uh, to to which they're uh, working and whether the whether the ends are um, just or legitimate. I mean, we do believe in a, in, in I anyway believe in the in the just war theory. And most of our theologians and churches have affirmed uh, the legitimacy of just war. But whether piratical behavior falls under that, I don't know. I think asymmetrical warfare does. And so whether piratical behavior is asymmetrical warfare, I don't know. That would be that would be one way to go at that. But um, there. I'm, my initial uh, response is to be skeptical uh, of this. But we did a great number of things in the service of the crown in the 16th and 17th centuries that we wouldn't want to justify now, yeah. including putting heretics to death and, and the like. Yeah. As much fun as it might have been. <laughs> as exactly. Satisfying it, as satisfying as it might have let's been. Let's all admit that. Let's, let's yeah. see. This is honesty here. This is authentic brokenness that we're all happy to own. <laughs> And admit yeah. to and all that. Although, I mean, yeah, you you wonder sometimes in the middle of the night if if uh, some of those who were involved in <laughs> Joshua Peck's missional piracy, um, you wonder if uh, if some of those who were involved in those kinds of episodes, you know, in the middle of the night had uh, had doubts about the legitimacy of what they were doing. I know some people did in the seventeenth century. Um, John Owen expressed some doubts about that, especially later in his life, at least according to Crawford Gribben in his fascinating um, volume published with OUP on Owen's life and theology. Well, you know, as we talk about cancel culture and, um, you know, retroactively condemning people, uh, the question would, uh, would arise, did Calvin know anything about this? I couldn't find any evidence that he that he did. Or that he commented on it, but this is a good time to mention that uh, John Calvin is um, arguably and maybe um, the founder of Protestant foreign missions because he did send uh, Geneva sent a number of ministers to Brazil uh, to uh, to serve those who were in a a, a French or Genevan commercial uh, operation there. And they, yeah. they also had the side mission of trying to convert the the natives or the um, indigenous people or the you know the slaves or the workers or whoever. Uh, I don't think that ultimately um, succeeded very much, um, but there were Calvinist missionaries um, in the New World. And, yeah, uh, I wouldn't make too much of that episode just because it's um, whether it was really a mission. Or whether it was a commercial enterprise, or exactly um, what sort of thing it was, is somewhat ambiguous. Sometimes people have tried to vindicate Calvin um, 
from the critique that, well, you know, he wasn't interested in reaching the lost. And then well, we respond, well, but well, no, he, he, you know, he sent uh, missionaries to Brazil. Um, I think the story is probably a little more complicated and, and, uh, and <clears throat> we shouldn't get caught in the trap of trying to justify a 16th century guy on the basis of 18th century uh, missionary sensibilities. So that, um, yeah. I think that's a, a trap. I mean, it's true. We were behind the Jesuits in the 16th century. They got a good run. Uh, you know, they they got a good 150-year run ahead of us in terms of doing something like missions. Whether we want to credit what the Jesuits were doing as missions is, a, is another question. But in, in terms of sending people out and, and uh, evangelizing them for for the Jesuit cause, they were they were way ahead of us. Um, uh, we have you know we eventually got going and particularly and what makes it complicated is that it, it as it begins in the 16th and continues through the 17th century it's very closely connected to um, colonial expansion exploration of the new world commercial interests and uh, and so all of that you know um, complicates things and it is true that that there were missionaries and pastors and uh, that went on on these expeditions um, but I've, I've been cautioned in the past, and what little reading I've done about the Brazil expedition um, leads me to, to think there might be some truth in the caution not to make too much of that episode. Good. It, it probably doesn't serve our interests. Yeah, and nearly every missional, uh, missionary movement has, has had some overlap with uh, colonial or commercial interest, uh, whether you know oh. o- overt or very subtle. Sure. There weren't a whole lot of... Uh... So uh, you kind of had to jump on the boat whenever it was leaving. So, uh, Dr. Clark, have you ever seen the um, the Werner Herzog movie, Aguirre, The Wrath of God? Or a, a, I have not. It's about a, um, I think it's set in Peru, but it's about uh, uh, Catholic missionaries accompanying, uh, uh, you know, an insane Colonel Kurtz type uh, conquistador. And uh, very interesting, but uh, could have been could have been largely interchangeable with some other, uh, maybe even some Protestant missionaries somewhere. Marlon Brando some should have, Marlon Brando should have played the insane guy. He was he was great at playing insane people. I have a feeling it was playing to type or not too distant from him. He it he, he wasn't a stretch. Yeah, for Brando, especially in the later years, to play an insane guy. Of course, Apocalypse Now is actually set, set in Vietnam, but it's actually based on Hearts of Darkness by Conrad Joseph Conrad, which yeah. was set in the Belgian Congo, and it was a Belgian, and you know maybe there was very likely was a, a religious or mission uh, dimension even to that enterprise yeah. in the Congo. So. so one thread that ties these things all together is anachronism, right? Ju- uh, whether um, anachronistically justifying what was done or uh, anachronistically condemning what was done. So cancel culture. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, in a very immediate sense, it can mean that, uh, well, uh, Kanye uh, put on a, a Donald Trump hat, so he's canceled, you know? Yeah. Or it can it can be over uh, an allegation, one thing that's been said or done uh, very near 
to this time, maybe yesterday, maybe 20 minutes ago. But um, I, I think pulling down statues and uh, and uh, and demanding the um, you know the con the condemnation of people from uh, decades or centuries ago. That's more what I've got in mind. Um, I gather, as a as a as an historian, you've been thinking about these things. Um, what's your take on um, what we're seeing? Uh, you know, the good thing is we're not talking about the virus. We're talking about the the riots <laughs> at this point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it, it, I'm obviously really concerned about cancel culture. I, if the viewer or reader wants to look at the Heidel blog, you can see there you know, any number of of uh, posts recently on the cancel culture. Uh, interesting uh, video there, how to resist cancel culture. You know, Steven Pinker, cancel culture is Orwellian. Um, quotation from Derek Green on, on the new anti-racism as a, as a new religion. And, you know, I've said that I think uh, Pinker is right. You know, it's Orwellian to demand jot and tittle conformity, um, you know, in civil life. We, you know, we live in a twofold kingdom, um, and it's also Orwellian to deny that cancel culture exists. That's one of the stranger things that I've seen recently, that this claim, oh, it doesn't really exist. And the, and the claims being made in some, in some fairly major uh, outlets. And, and I say it's just gaslighting to say that it, it doesn't exist. If somebody wants to know what's gaslighting, gaslighting is, is um, you know, uh, uh, it comes from the, the movie, obviously, where the husband is slowly uh, poisoning the wife and telling her that everything is fine. And uh, that's exactly what what this is. Uh, he's he's uh, uh, what messing around. This is there's a gas flame that that lights the room and he's messing around with that and and uh, and poisoning poisoning her. <clears throat> if you want to know whether cancel culture exists, um, just think of what you cannot say. Right. Um, a perfectly reasonable proposition that, uh, that and you know that it, that it's reasonable and true, um, but you cannot say it. You don't dare say it because if you said it, the, um, the, the, the wrath of the mob would be upon you and you don't want to suffer the consequences of that. And that is cancel culture. Um, I'm not saying I'm not talking about being able to say things that are um, dangerous, uh, that are defamatory, uh, things that are are um, uh, you know, slanderous, but things that that are none of those uh, uh, that are true that cannot be said um, for fear of of uh, of destruction. So, and uh, one of the things I've written recently uh, of icons, wonder years, and the gospel is about um, the parallels between the, uh, the, the wonder year, 1566, and the iconoclasm that spread through the Netherlands, sponsored largely by uh, vigorous Reformed denunciations of idolatry, Roman Catholic idolatry. And, um, and then I, I was interested to sort of think about the parallels between that and, uh, and the wave of iconoclasm that we're, we're seeing now, uh, where people are out to uh, cancel the past and uh, and very intentionally right this is not uh, entirely spontaneous this is highly organized uh, disciplined uh, both strategic in, in that the strategic goal is to wipe out visible representations of the past uh, to create uh, only the present that's an orwellian 
uh, tactic. Or Orwell warned us about this. Uh, th- this is um, this is a a, a, a a communist tactic, right? I, I know I sound like a sort of commie baiting. Um, who was it? I couldn't think of it when I did it on the Heidelcast. Who uh, who was the um, founder of the uh, Bible Presbyterians who was on his? Uh, it'd be McIntyre, Bus McIntyre, yeah, McIntyre. Um, so this is—I I know I sound like McIntyre, uh, who was, you know, always warning about the commies. And uh, by the way, as it turns out, a- after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we some folks got access to some of those records, right? And there's a two or three years, maybe two years, when we had access to those records, and and we were able to see that. In, yes, there it is. Thank you, Phil. Um, it, it was. Uh, Carl McIntyre, and he was right. I mean, he wasn't entirely right, but he wasn't wrong about the um, uh, communist influence in the United States government and and the program of the communists and so forth. And uh, anyway, so I know I, I sound like a uh, 1950s red baiting well, radio. M- M- McCarthy was more right than wrong as well. I mean, he, well, he was a jerk. But, he, yeah, he was a horrible man, and uh, and um, and he did damage a lot of otherwise innocent people. But um, and and I, and I think maybe to some degree he was used, and he used people, and and uh, so the whole process was very messy. But in fact, there were uh, communists in the State Department, and, um, and and so that's that's where a lot of this comes from. Um, uh, there, there are people with a highly uh, realized uh, eschatology who uh, who want to realize a kind of earthly utopia, and it begins with the wiping out of the past. That's that's part of the program. So yeah. year zero, you, you saw these people, you know, uh, hitting uh, statues simultaneously all over the United States. This was a this was planned, and if you, I've been watching the Antifa folks uh, for several years now, maybe three years. Does that count as several? Yeah, watching Andy No, and I know people have criticisms. I'm aware people have people have criticisms uh, of Andy No, and um, but uh, he's the guy who was covering them before anybody else was, and uh, and uh, having. You know, calling attention to them and going to the rallies and the and the riots and the protests and so forth, and um, uh, you see these guys all dressing in a kind of uniform, a black block uniform, and carrying um, sophisticated radios. Right? This isn't just. I was going to say Radio Shack. I don't think it exists anymore. This isn't stuff you just went to the sporting goods store and pulled down off the shelf. Somehow it does. Which what? Or somehow Radio Shack does still exist. Oh, does it really? I did not know that because ours is gone. I I thought they had gone out of business entirely. I want to. There's still one in there. Resby's quality audio. Resby's quality quality audio was brought to you by Radio Shack. (laughs) Resby knows because that's where he got. (laughs) <laughs> his equipment. He's uh, with us. He's with us no spiritually. Yeah. Uh, I, can no, assure, they, I can. I can assure everyone, Resby's there, uh-huh. and he's with us in spirit. So I hear they're going to string the the a telephone wire over to your neighborhood there. 
Is that they finally going to get get a, a telephone wire all the way over there? We, you see his mic. I just want to. I just want a party line at this point. <laughs> his his mic flag is a blockbuster membership card, so that tells oh, you nice. that he can't even stream anything. Uh, uh, blockbuster video. <laughs> oh. I I think there's one blockbuster left in America. I saw somewhere recently. Yeah, that's true. I'm not sure where it is, but anyway, it's or, uh, going on. All right, can he's, he call in? No, he's gone again. He's okay. He no, no, his cell phone service is worse than his internet. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean just use the cell. Just use the uh, uh, landline, or maybe he probably doesn't have a landline. Oh, that shows how old. No, not since he went wild with that backhoe. <laughs> that's see, that's what that you drink a six pack and get on the backhoe, and, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> you live to regret that. Yeah, he says I ain't got no stinking landline. <laughs> you know, there's a there there's a bluegrass song. Um, it's called "I Dug Up the Driveway to Keep My Baby Home." <laughs> Because, um, you know, a, a lot of guys out in the country, they got their own backhoe. And if, yeah. uh, if their wife is subject to wander, they just make it where she can't uh, can't leave. Uh, dig a moat with no drawbridge, and it's all good. I think Hank Williams did a did. – I'm walking the floor over you. And that you can put a pretty dark interpretation on that, on that line in particular. Anyway, so yeah, where were we before? Well, we were canceling. Some no, we're talking yeah. about uh, we're talking about the civil dimension. We're talking of cancel about cancel culture. Yes, not a game, not a game, not a game. We're but, talking about canceling. Yeah, so it. Uh, uh, the, I think there's a deliberate, strategic, and and then a, a tactical uh, attempt to, uh, as uh, as I learned from. Um, uh, Stella Morabito and others to controversialize. That's the first stage, and um, and then to cancel. And um, and it's a, I think it's a fairly small group, and I think it's um, uh, had uh, influence well beyond its size, just because they've been organized and determined and facilitated. Now, clearly, there are uh, civil magistrates in this country who find it. Uh, to their uh, advantage, politically and culturally, to facilitate this uh, destruction and and uh, craziness. All right, so that's the civil dimension, of course. Yeah, uh, that's one thing. Um, those tactics are are they're actually very um, effective to sort of uh, you know circle someone, break them off from the herd. Yep, uh, make them noxious and uh, belittle them. And uh, cause trouble for and to make them. People, make people feel like they are alone, uh, isolated. No one agrees with them. Um, that's the value of astroturfing. That's the the creation of the impression, uh, artificially, that a great number of people uh, think something, when in fact it's only five people in a room using a computer and multiple fake uh, t- uh, social media accounts, Twitter or Facebook or whatever, um, and uh, and it uh, creates the set. You gives people the impression, well, I must be the only one who thinks X, and I better not say anything about that or against Y, or I'll be isolated. I'll be ostracized. And, uh, and of course, uh, 
uh, all this is happening at the same time as the coronavirus, in which we really are isolated from one another, and we're not able to have contact with each other, and and just to talk, so that now the only way we can talk now, at least it, it was for a while, that um, um, you know, we were only able to talk online or you know not just to stand face to face and have that sort of ordinary human communion. Um, so it's a it it's a uh, all happen at a, um, it's been propitious for the folks that want to achieve their social goals, but it's been bad for the rest of us. And, and I do think something like that can happen ecclesiastically as well. I'm not suggesting there's an organization uh, with identical goals, but, or even the same tactics. Um, but it is, it is the case that I think laity in the, in the church can come to think, well, and I'm, I'm isolated, I'm alone, uh, nobody agrees with me, I see problems, but I don't want to speak up because I don't want to be the only one to, you know, like a gopher, poke your head up and then get whacked with a mallet. So we've talked about the, the civil, political um, type of cancel culture. Um, let's go back briefly and talk about the iconoclasm uh, of the early Reformation, um, I have read that it was largely um, uh, populist. Uh, that people people heard the truths of the uh, Reformation, and um, I think probably uh, they weren't they weren't so incensed with the images uh, as such, but just that they were uh, emblematic of um, of of the Roman Church, who they came to realize it served them so poorly. Um, Tell us about the beginning of iconoclasm there. I mean, just in the very early 1500s. Well, uh, iconoclasm, as I understand it, was largely a religious movement. I'm not saying, again, that civil um, figures didn't take advantage of um, uh, the, the popular discontent or the or the movement to uh, achieve what they what they were uh, aiming to do, but I I am saying that um, that the discontent with images was uh, many times uh, in, uh, among the pastors and the people uh, a genuinely religious movement, and and it, so there is a movement in in modern uh, historiography to reduce everything to politics and um, and economics. Nobody does anything for purely. Uh, religious reasons. Uh, if people say that they're doing things for religious reasons, that's just a cover for their uh, economic self-interest, their class self-interest, uh, or their political uh, self-interest. And, and I, um, I simply uh, don't think I have not found that to be the case. Uh, in the, I I can't speak globally to all the episodes of uh, of iconoclasm, but I can say that the episodes that I know about uh, were uh, prompted by fiery reformed preaching against uh, images and and against idolatry that was the thing that animated people was that these things are idolatry yes they're symbolic of, of roman oppression they're symbolic of the suffering that the protestants were enduring they were uh, symbolic of, uh, of repression um, symbolic of uh, maybe even of martyrdom of uh, of protestants but uh, they were genuinely uh, offended as they came to understand the holiness of God, as they came to understand his transcendence, as they came to understand what the Ten Commandments 
uh, said uh, and what the history of redemption uh, showed and what the New Testament says about God being holy and, uh, and the, so the unity of the covenant of grace, well, as they came to see all those things, they, they were deeply offended by these representations of the deity. And, um, you know, they, they had a steady diet of denunciations of idolatry, whether it was the idolatry of the mass uh, or idolatry of the, of the icons. And, and uh, they saw them as violations of the second commandment. And we don't have to guess as to what the Reformed thought about those things, because uh, you, all we have to do is look at what the Reformed confessions say. And the consensus on that is, is deep and wide and, uh, and easily seen. So when Luther wanted to throttle the iconoclasm, and when he was very uh, disturbed by the way it was, seemed to be getting out of control, was yeah. that was that because he didn't think images were that big a deal, um, or I mean, was was he okay with the images, or was he just not okay with the disorder? Because I understand Zwingli's followers would have been uh, radically against the images themselves. But I'm wondering, in the areas where it was, there was more Lutheran, um, wasn't there less Lutheran em- emphasis on the evil of the images themselves, yeah, or did that, that come later? No, uh, Luther was fairly indifferent. Uh, one of the differences between Luther and Zwingli and Luther and Bullinger and Luther and Calvin, um, and the way in which all the Reformed uh, agreed on this, was that the Reformed were, were relatively more concerned about what we would think of as purity in worship. Um, because Luther didn't uh, adopt our principle of worship. Um, Luther's principle was, and the Lutheran principle became, you can do whatever is not forbidden. And that became the Anglican principle, and that became the Lutheran principle, and it's the predominant evangelical principle. And it's the practical principle by which a lot of PNR people operate. But formally, our principle was, we only do and worship what God has commanded. And if he hasn't commanded it, we don't do it. And if he said, don't do it, then we certainly don't do it. And... Uh, and they were uh, certain that, and they and and the, as they read as Calvin did and and um, Melanchthon did read the early church, and they came to see that in fact the um, the early church was a dead set against representations of the deity of any of the persons, and then that's why Bullinger said in the Second Helvetic Confession, published in 1566, that God the Son did not become incarnate to make. Work, uh, to make work for carvers and artisans, uh, and 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 in doing that, he um, uh, he was uh, articulating um, the the consensus of the of the ancient church. So, um, I got distracted by uh, Aaron DeBoer, Aaron DeBoer's question yeah. that just popped up on the put a question up. Um, so that uh, so Luther is uh, he, he's not as concerned about uh, and he's not bothered by icons as far as Luther is concerned that was the other half of what you were asking about that um, Luther uh, uh, doesn't think that representations of the deity are any big deal and and uh, especially representations of the second person and and that is grounded in part because um, Luther and the Lutherans on the one side and uh, the Reformed on the other had a different conception, um, uh, a, different, a different understanding of the relation of the two natures. So that uh, in the Reformed understanding, which I think is pretty strictly Chalcedonian, I think it follows the, defi- the um, uh, 
uh, Athanasian Creed very closely. Uh, you know, one person, two natures. Um, they're distinct, united, inseparable. Uh, but the properties of the humanity remain, and the properties of the deity remain. And the properties of the humanity are not transferred uh, to the deity, and the properties of the deity are not transferred to the humanity. And uh, Luther, in our view, tends to, and the Lutherans tend to, transfer the properties of the deity to the humanity and the humanity to the deity. And and I think that contributes to a certain laxness about representations of the deity. But as, and as I say, their view of images um, is much more Greek uh, and much more uh, 7th and 8th century than it is 2nd and 3rd century. And uh, and we're with the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and 5th centuries, uh, on at least formally, uh, confessionally, uh, on images. And so they, as I say, the Reform were, were you know, uh, uh, preaching fiery sermons. And, and, and of course, politically, uh, to finish the answer about uh, Luther, um, Karlstadt starts agitating for iconoclasm and starts leading a charge against the icons, not on the basis of a necessarily a reformed Christology or, or a reformed understanding of Scripture, uh, but uh, out of a uh, an overrealized eschatology uh, as he as he begins to become an Anabaptist, right, moving from the Lutheran. Uh, camp into the Anabaptist camp and, and embracing the over-realized eschatology, or highly, to put it in more neutral terms, the highly realized eschatology of the Anabaptists. And he th- and in so doing, by, by do, you know, participating in a popular uprising, it tends to bring the, re- the Reformation into dis- uh, disrepute. It tends to make the Protestant Reformation look like a bunch of radical crazies. And... Uh, and Luther was, I think, justifiably concerned about that. If we're going to take these things down, they need to be done. That needs to be done decently, and it needs to be done um, in consultation with, in cooperation with a magistrate, and not by a, a mob running in the streets. And I would say that still myself, that uh, mobs taking things down, uh, whether in the streets or, or in the churches, as again as, as satisfying as it might be personally, is a, a very poor way to, to go about things. Calvin's. Uh, Years ago, I remember reading some stupid article by a mainline Presbyterian guy arguing, and I think I responded to it on the Heidel blog, arguing that uh, Calvin would have would have supported the uh, Occupy folks. In, uh, <laughs> and that's just crazy. He couldn't possibly have read Calvin uh, for 10 minutes and come, uh, come to that conclusion. You, nobody who knows Calvin would could possibly think that he would have the... the uh, even the slightest inkling of support for a, a radical mob in the in the streets that was his worst fear and then for the reformation to be associated with a, a radical destructive mob um, would have been um, i think with you know just as just as with luther i think it would have been uh, and it was damaging to the reformation so right, well, um, to aaron's question i mean i think yeah. you sort of answered it uh, he didn't want things to get out of hand either and didn't want destruction for destruction's sake. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the the passions of the young are are, are can be useful, um, but uh, but it has to be channeled, and it has to be moderated. And um, you know, uh, I've personally faced this. I have uh, preached and taught in uh, Reformed and Presbyterian churches where there were large uh, violations of the Second Commandment, and. Um, 
with the and I and I've taught against violations of the second commandment in those very places. And I remember a pastor telling me he 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 kind of hoped that after I was done that somebody might be inspired to throw a rock through a window because <laughs> he, he apparently hadn't gotten very far with his session. Uh, it didn't happen, but uh, and and that wouldn't have been a very orderly way of going at, at things. Um, well, the reason the reason Resby and I don't meet some weekend and go break up a Catholic church is the same reason that um, that Calvin wouldn't have joined the Occupy movement, and that's just a basic respect for private property and uh, law, order. I mean, the order. You know, we we see how valuable order is. People mock law and order, but just try to have uh, a, a society without order. Um. You know, try to. Um, so we had protesters in the middle of the freeway uh, in San Diego a couple of times, and and uh, when you're stuck on the freeway in between exits, can't go backwards, can't go forwards. Um, that, you know, and if you if you have a, a truck full of goods that you're supposed to be delivering, or trying to go to work, or trying to go to the hospital, or or whatever it is you're trying to do, um, you can't function. You can't go. And uh, people are making a point. Maybe it's an important point. Maybe it's a valuable point. Maybe it's a true point. Um, but they've defeated uh, the value of their point. I doubt anybody who was stuck in traffic for five hours is much persuaded by by what was going on uh, on uh, Interstate 8 in San Diego when people uh, blocked it. At least when you do it on the streets. You get a permit. You do it on the streets. You can go around and get where you need to go and do what you need to do. And emergency services can function. But... Um, when you take the uh, city by the throat, if you will, uh, choke it or shut it down. Yeah, I know that my local megachurch, which employs off-duty uh, cops to do rolling roadblocks on a four-lane to ease their ingress and egress, I, I, I've read uh, Facebook n- enough to know that they haven't made a lot of friends with that policy of, uh, mm-hmm. of basically shutting down a public uh, uh, thoroughfare. For their convenience, although it's I yeah. guess it's orderly because there is a policeman involved, but uh, nobody likes that. So even less a, um, well, if, a violent if a protest. Mile, if there was a mile long tailback, um, then uh, that would be dangerous too. I mean, yeah, I, I imagine they've they've worked this out in conjunction with the. Uh, um, Civil authorities, I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I, uh, Sylvia sent in a question that I'm, I'm not going to read. Um, yeah, wrong though, wrong, Calvin, Sylvia. Yeah, wrong Calvin, Sylvia. Good work. Not that one. <laughs> not, the, not the one with the tiger. <laughs> no, not that. Yeah, different. Yeah, we're talking about a different Calvin there, Sylvia. Well, so. all's forgiven. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, uh, we've talked <laughs> When we talk about um, cancel culture in the church, um, what do you see there? And what do you think might, might I mean, a few things have happened. Well, there have been, there have, um, there have been some pretty successful um, moves against uh, some Southern theologians. Uh, we know someone who's tried to cancel Machen as much as they can. Um, sure. What's what's next there? Uh, do, do you think? You know that's a good question, and I'm probably the wrong guy to ask because I tend to think more about what happened than 
I do sometimes think about what will happen. I mean, I think in as much as the ecclesiastical or religious Christian cancel culture exists, um, you, you can you can predict what's going to happen based on whatever's happening in the culture because they're they're essentially parroting uh, the culture and um, at least some some parts of the culture. And so whatever that whatever the culture's doing is probably what they're going to to say and do. I do think that's right. Um, there have been attempts to um, controversialize Machen uh, to make him uh, unclean, uh, impure, and not to be talked about, not to be um, uh, considered uh, to to delegitimize him, so that uh, we we can't consider him because he's he's morally uh, impure and unclean and. And my response is everybody that we consider in the past is a sinner. And so if you're setting it up so that, that anybody who sinned in the past, who uh, wrote uh, uh, an unfortunate letter to his mother, expressed opinions with which we would now disagree pretty vehemently, if that person is now no longer qualified to teach us anything, then uh, you, you know um, now we're back to the same kind of a radical, uh, overrealized eschatology of, of the Marxists and uh, and the communists specifically, um, you know, year zero. There's there's nobody in the past who can tell us anything, which is kind of interesting. And we don't have to pay any attention to Marx because he was a thoroughly unpleasant fellow, and um, and um, uh, not much to be emulated. Um, nor Lenin. So they don't get they don't get a pass uh, either. It seems to me. Um, so yeah, I, I think we have to re- reckon with the fact that uh, we that all the folks in the past who have influenced us, from whom we have learned. And we've inherited good things and bad things. And uh, the great thing about being a Protestant is we have a standard by which we can evaluate the things that they said, the things that we that they did. Or, and um, we have the Word of God by which we can measure them. We have our confessions by which we can measure them. And um, and if they, made, if they said something wrong or did something wrong, uh, uh, we don't have to um, uh, affirm that, but we can still learn from them. If we set it up that we can't learn from anybody who sinned, then, we, then there's nobody from whom we can learn. And that's just not acceptable and intolerable. And and so here the doctrine of Christian liberty helps us. You're entitled, you know, uh, you, whoever you are, um, and one is entitled to one's opinion about figures in the past, whether it's Machen or somebody else. <laughs> so right, if, if one thinks uh, that you know Machen's private letter to his mother not something he ever published, not something that he taught, um, what disqualifies him. Well, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to impose that on the rest of us. And we can continue, and we can even continue to learn both positively and negatively uh, from people who committed even grosser sins. I mean, I, I think it's more pointed when you get to Thornwell and Dabney. Um, I'm not a huge fan of either. I'm not actually very well read in either. It, it, I just haven't spent a lot of time reading 19th century Southern Presbyterians. And there are a lot of others. I mean, I've, I've read a little bit about them, but I have not spent a lot of time reading them. But I'm not going to let somebody uh, keep me from reading them simply because um, uh, they've attempted to controversialize them, dirty them up, and um, and then imply that anybody who, who reads them is somehow morally corrupt or or compromised. Well, in his own inimitable way, our friend uh, Dr. Daryl Hart, he questioned whether, um, you know, King David should be canceled. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he yeah, he, uh, arguably uh, some kind of sexual predator and, and a conspirator 
of uh, of a sort. I don't know. If, I'm not sure if it's a conspiracy, but he certainly sought to have uh, a man murdered, and uh, and he was a man of blood. He had blood on his hands. So, man after God's own heart, and he had blood on his hands. Wasn't able to build the the temple, and, um, and that's true of the whole history of redemption. Uh, I mean, uh, Abraham did terrible things, uh, right, relative to Sarah, and uh, and and. And yet he's still, look Look how he shows up in Hebrews. So uh, these are all our brothers and sisters. Um, nobody, nobody in my family is, is uh, pure. None of them dropped out of uh, heaven uh, into human history. Um, and um, as a consequence, uh, there's always stuff. Uh, there are always skeletons in the closet. And that's really the big point. Um, you know, we dealt with this when, we, when, when it came out that... Uh, you know, there were Puritans who owned slaves and, and defended um, slavery. And we and we just have to be honest about that and say, well, yeah, that happened, and that was wrong. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we, we don't benefit from them still. We can't learn from them, even as we recognize their their humanity, their frailty, their fallibility, and their sinfulness. We, we, we can say all of those things at the same time. It seems to me the example of the sons of Noah uh, might be, uh, helpful and instructive to us. Uh, they could have chosen to cancel their father, um, but they covered uh, his nakedness, his uh, drunkenness, and uh, they were commended for it. And um, you know, the one, the one or ones who didn't, um, you know, they suffered for it. And um, that's uh, to me, that's a pretty striking example that is rarely, rarely uh, invoked or. Um, we're talked about. Yeah, you know, so in the piece on um, icons and iconoclasm of icons, wonder years in the gospel, uh, I th- was thinking about Philemon, and I'm wondering if anybody ever reads uh, the, the epistle to Philemon anymore, because you know the apostle Paul didn't excommunicate Philemon, even though uh, Philemon was a slave owner. He calls him a brother, and he even calls him a fellow worker, which is a, a high title in Paul's um, uh, uh, vocabulary. He doesn't call uh, uh, people, he doesn't uh, refer to everyone about whom he writes or to whom he writes as a sooner cross. So we should recognize that. And, and, uh, you know, look at how Paul dealt with with Philemon. Did he stamp his feet? And did he demand immediate righteousness from Philemon? And, And he did not, because... Paul did not have the kind of over-realized eschatology that we're seeing, um, you know, that, that's driving some of this to the degree that cancel culture exists, um, you know, within the Christian world and within the PNR world. And to, and I agree with you entirely. I think there are figures who are trying to uh, institute or instigate a kind of uh, cancel culture. Um, but look how Paul uh, deals with uh, Philemon. He, he doesn't even... Um, issue a demand. Um, it, it, in fact, his letter was intentionally not a demand. He says he has the authority to demand that uh, Philemon release Onesimus, the slave, but he didn't uh, do it. Uh, instead, he positions himself, he casts himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus, first one, and he recognizes Philemon as a believer. He doesn't say, well, clearly, you're not a believer, you um, you've done this terrible thing. And, it, and by the way, I'm confident that Paul was opposed to um, uh, the owning of, of slaves. Certainly, uh, he was opposed 
to Philemon owning Onesimus as a slave. And Paul says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And this is what's interesting. And this is the difference between Paul and cancel culture. Cancel culture uh, doesn't uh, persuade. It only demands. It, uh, it protests. It throws things. It screams. It yells. It spits. Um, and um, <laughs> it plays uh, machin horns. It, you know, it, it, uh, it's, it's not a, a gentle, calm, reasoned uh, appeal I, or, or attempt to persuade. It's, the technical word is protreptic. All right. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, not a biological child whose father, speaking figuratively now, let's pay attention to the genre here. Uh, I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now, indeed, uh, he, he is useful to you and to me. I take him to be saying something like, perhaps, uh, now that he's useful to me, you want him back. And uh, now now he's useful to you. Uh, anyway, uh, I am sending him back to you, uh, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. And here I think he's tweaking him a little bit. Right. He, you know, he could have stayed with me. He could have helped me during, I'm, after all, I'm in prison for the gospel, but you wanted him back. So I'm, I'm sending him back. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Uh, for this, uh, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a now watch this. No longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So that uh, that seems to me to be a model for the way we we deal uh, with these things. This is the antithesis of cancel culture. Right? Uh, Paul's not trying to shut uh, Philemon up. Um, he's not trying to controversialize Philemon. Um, he's not trying to uh, to make it uh, so that uh, Philemon is uh, publicly regarded as a bad person. Uh, rather, he talks to him and he persuades him. He treats him as a fellow image bearer. And so one of the reasons why Christians can't participate in cancel culture is that it's intrinsic to cancel culture to dehumanize the person that you're trying to cancel. Cancel culture is just naked uh, politics, the, the, the raw exercise of power under the, um, as I said, uh, one of the sides on the blog, uh, under the guise of victimhood, right? I'm a victim, and, um, and therefore I'm exercising the authority my culture gives me as a victim to say that you're a bad person and no one should ever listen to you, and you have to be quiet. And anybody who, who reads or listens to you or is influenced by you is a bad person, and, um, and, you, and you, you have to be made to shut up and go away. Well, I think the fifth commandment is helpful to us as well. I mean, it does speak of superiors and inferiors, which uh, I can see that language being canceled. Uh, at some point, um, but, there is an order, right? There's but, an order in the world that God has instituted. It's not an order of being, contra the some of the uh, folks, um, the Genevan common folks who are, who've set up this weird hierarchy of being among human beings. But there is a an order, uh, an administrative order, 
an economy uh, in the world that God has set up. Well, and I think the fifth commandment uh, can be, you know, can be applied to uh, not just our earthly parents or our, our uh, living parents, uh, but I think to our ancestors and those who have come before us, our our betters. And I think most, I think, uh, I'm sure you would say uh, that many of those who some who who some would cancel are your better or betters, um, and we do owe those who have come before us. Uh, whether they're great or great or small, um, known or well known, but I think we know enough to know that there are some people that we owe a great debt to, and um, it would be uh, it could be construed as a violation of the fifth commandment to um, to handle them uh, wrongly. Well, the Lord Jesus did say something about loving your neighbor as yourself. So when you're gone, how do you want to be treated? Uh, uh, do you want to be controversialized and canceled and um, diminished and and denied and dehumanized, or do you want to be recognized for what you were—a a sinner redeemed by the grace of God—and um, and, uh, and and sort of treated like that, an image bearer, fallen and uh, and redeemed? It doesn't mean we have to uh, excuse what they did. You know, it's, not, it's not a binary choice. We can recognize what people did. Uh, we do this all the time in family history. Right? Um, my, my, both of my grandfathers uh, were overtly racist. I love my grandfathers, but they were just wrong. And um, um, they were bigoted and they were racist. Um, and not racist in the way that people are using the word now. That is, anyone who is part of the prevailing system or who defends it in any way is a racist, uh, whether anybody is uh, bigoted against uh, uh, an ethnic group or not. And they, so the word is being redefined in purely systemic, systematic uh, categories. Um, I'm talking about uh, the old-fashioned sense of racism. So the, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, the first two definitions are really what I'm talking about. The, the way that we have used the word for a very long time, uh, they were that. But that isn't all they were. Right? They were capable of real kindness, capable of real generosity, um, and um, and capable on, of, of those things, uh, even toward um, people who belong to groups against whom they were bigoted. Life is complicated. That's the other thing that, um, you know, as a historian and as a pastor and it's just a grown man, uh, you know, you, I realize more and more every year that life is complicated. People are complicated. They can't be reduced to one thing. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I I learned a lot from my uh, my grandfathers as, as much as and as vehemently as I disagreed with them and as backward as, as I thought they were and as um, unchristian in, in those regards. As, as I think they were, as I know they were, um, uh, yet they're still uh, my grandfathers. Uh, I'm still connected to them. Um, they're still a part of me. I'm, I'm a part of them. And, um, and that's true, too. And I wouldn't be what I am, and I, and I wouldn't have had the opportunities to do the things that I've done, learn the things that I've done, uh, learned, and, and go to some of the places I've gone had they not uh, been what they were. I don't mean racist, but you know, hardworking uh, folks who um, who put other people ahead of themselves, even if they did it imperfectly. 
So it, it and if you're, you're going to set up a world where those people um, have to be canceled, then um, who among us is left? So we're really talking about a kind of Phariseeism. Right? That doesn't, there's no forgiveness. There's no grace. There's only, only righteousness, only justice, which one of my fundamental concerns about all of this is that there's a, a gracelessness, uh, a legal spirit, and a confusion of the law and the gospel. Um, the gospel is for sinners of all kinds, and we can't set up, you know, is, race, is racism, for example, uh, having a wrong opinion uh, about slavery, uh, is, is that the unforgivable sin? Did Jesus die for those people? Did he obey in their behalf, and did he die for them? Was his righteousness credited to them, even though they were never perfectly sanctified in this life? And I think we have to say uh, that he did. Um, we don't have any knowledge uh, from Scripture that people who held racist opinions or wrong opinions or even did wrong things relative to slavery committed thereby the unforgivable sin. We know Paul had some uh, unkind things to say about the Cretans, um, for instance. Just thinking about that, all Cretans are liars, gluttons, slow bellies, whatever that is. They had digestive issues. I don't know what slow bellies is. I really don't. I've tried to uh, figure it out. At least last time I looked. I I think I have that. I think I have that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I need to take some magnesium or something. so it, um, yeah, it, you know, and of course, Paul's quoting a, a pagan poet to make a point. You know, he's, he's he's speaking rhetorically, and and is that wrong? You know, that 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 way of speaking. He's not he, obviously Paul. Paul wasn't stupid. He didn't uh, think literally that all Cretans were those things. This was a maxim that he was invoking to make a point. Yeah. Well, he's, he 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 better be careful if he comes if he comes back around. <laughs> so I mean, it's uh, our you know, and so as we think about the church, um, you know, our our my vision going forward is is people sitting down and talking. One of the things I regret most about cancel culture is it means that, that you can't talk anymore. Somebody that we uh, both would recognize in the Nate Park world expressed uh, his frustration at. at uh, uh, people uh, um, contacting him and, and wanting to talk to him about this stuff, and he said, "Look, if you, I'm exhausted with all this. If you want to talk to me about this, you know, my hourly rate is X." And so I tweeted out, "Well, all right, the, now, if this is the rule. This is uh, uh, this is how I'm going to proceed from now on with you Baptists, because you Baptists are always after me to talk about <laughs> baptism. Here's my here's my hourly rate, or whatever it was he was saying, and and I thought it was interesting." Um, then not well, it wasn't too long after that uh, there was a, uh, an episode and I don't remember exactly how it how it came about but some uh, as an older Jewish woman who was sitting down to talk with somebody about anti-Semitism and I thought well if it, and she was a Holocaust survivor she's one of the the few remaining living Holocaust survivors and I thought well if anybody could say Hey, I've paid my dues, and I don't have to to talk to you anymore about this. You know, as as sometimes people say, Google is your friend. In other words, do your own work, do your own reading, don't bother me. But she didn't take that attitude. She sat down and she walked this person through the story of the Holocaust, and and through the suffering of her people, 
to try to help him understand uh, what happened and uh, and why anti-Semitism is wrong. And and I think that's the model for us. I think we have to be endlessly patient with people. And uh, people have been endlessly patient with me. Um, and I, But I don't know any other way to make progress. Uh, breaking down, cancel culture wants to break down relationships and it wants to stop conversation. That uh, I was very moved by the video of the a black cop in Portland, and I and I posted that uh, clip on the Heidel blog, and um, I really hope people will watch this because he's testifying to, as to what happened when uh, he was talking with with uh, other black people. They were saying, "Why are you here? You're you're black. Why are you uh, you know oppressing us or preventing us from?" protesting or whatever it was they were you know, wanting to talk about. And then just as soon as he would begin talking with these people, uh, some white uh, person, typically a female, would, you know, interject herself and tell this, you know, uh, a black civilian, don't talk to this cop. She, she wants to stop conversation. She wants to stop uh, learning. She wants to stop mutual understanding. That was tactical and that was strategic. It was a tactic toward a, a longer goal of isolating us from one another, separating us from one another, one another, and preventing us from talking to one another. So the only way I know to go forward is to talk to one another. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that people have taken up the, the cancel culture um, within the church. And by that, I'm not denigrating church discipline, or nor I've been accused of, of uh, somebody on Twitter accused me of practicing cancel culture relative to uh, Doug Wilson, Moscow, and the Federal Vision. Um, no, warning people about a gross doctrinal error and a series of gross practical errors and mistakes, documented and um, and publicized and um, and uh, recognized by his own federation of churches, right? At least the the practical pastoral errors, if not the doctrinal errors. But uh, the Napark churches have documented it. The RCUS report probably most extensively has documented his doctrinal theological errors. Um, so uh, noting that is just telling, I'm not canceling him. I'm just saying people ought not to listen to him. I'm not dehumanizing him. Um, we have to be able to say this is a doctrinal error. This is a practical error. Christians not, not, ought not to support that, and they ought not to be influenced by it, and they ought not to be following it. And they certainly ought not to be you know, selling their house and moving up to Moscow or um, sending their kids to go to school up there. That's, I, I don't think that qualifies as cancel culture at all. Yeah, I figured that would come up. Um, so another thing this all resembles is um, fundamentalist separation uh, culture. Uh, we talk about the IFB guys a lot. Uh, very legalistic, very moralistic in many cases. And um, and they, uh, they are good at keeping... Well, They've canceled most of uh, their neighbors and society, um, and there's a certain exhilaration in that, and it, it, it builds a certain cohesion. But I don't, I don't think it's the road that we uh, that we want to go down. No, um, and I've been accused of being guilty of separationism, and uh, I think it's possible. I'm not sure that I'm guilty of it. And again, this would go back to the federal vision. Um, you know, um, can, can we have anything to do with federal visionists? And um, because it's, it's uh, um, can be difficult in some circles to avoid uh, cooperating with federal visionists. And uh, 
And I, I struggle with this. I mean, uh, would the Apostle Paul cooperate with, with a Judaizer? If the, you know, the question is, how, how serious an error is the federal division? And, um, and, and would, you know, would the Apostle Paul say, well, you know, I disagree with the Judaizers. I think, they, I think they're preaching a false gospel. But I think we can cooperate on certain things. I, I can't personally. I can't imagine that. I think there are certain lines that you can't cross, and and corrupting the gospel. So in by baptism, staying in by works, um, that's a line you can't cross. And uh, or in, as far as I know, uh, final salvation through works. I don't care who's who's publishing it now. Final salvation through works is not good news. It's not the gospel. It's not what we confess, and and I don't think that uh, we ought to be cooperating with folks who are teaching that. I don't care how famous they are, how influential they are, or or uh, persuasive. So, uh, does I don't does that make me uh, an IFB type separationist? I don't I don't think so. Well, you know, Paul, Paul's you you mentioned the Judaizers. You know, he he did sort of um, imply that they should do something surgical to themselves. It's a <laughs> little did, harsh. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he was, he yeah. was, that's not exactly transgender going on, but there was some, uh, <laughs> some reassignment there at least. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it as reassignment. Yeah. But I wish if you, if you think, if you think circumcision is so great, he says, just in case the listener doesn't get the reference in Galatians, he says, if you think circumcision is so fantastic, I wish they'd go the whole way and cut themselves off. So emasculate themselves. And of course that's a rhetorical. Yeah. So sure. I, I don't, I don't see him, uh, cooperating. But that's not to say he didn't cooperate with, with people with whom he disagreed on some things. He clearly did. So there there have to be boundaries. And uh, and I, I you know, uh, people have challenged me about my view of worship, you know, and um, you know, I'm, I'm I, I do what I can in, um, in our typical worship services. I sing the songs that I can sing and I hum the ones that, uh, that I can't. And uh, out here lately, people have been forced by the state of California to join me. We, for several weeks, we had to hum. We weren't allowed to sing. So I, <laughs> so I thought, we're do, all humming now, so you've joined me. Do you hum better than you sing? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I do either particularly well. My goal is to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Okay. That's what, that's what, um, but, I'm, you know, if I were in my, there have been cases among the fundamentalists where we ended up, you know, the fundamentalist ended up alone in their uh, in their attic, communing themselves, and I think that's a terrible thing. Oh, that's a denial of the Catholicity of the Church. Well, as we as we get ready to wrap up, let's let's hear from uh, one of our fundamentalist friends, Nathan Rager. I won't take the time to pay the uh, play the fun with Baptist themes, but um, well, here's an IFB guy preaching to about six people. The fruit of Calvinism smells like pot. The fruit of Calvinism smells like marijuana. It's rotting. It smells like rotting fruit in the garbage being burned. So that's pretty, pretty pithy. That wasn't very nice at all. <laughs> we we can shower. We have showers. We have cologne. <laughs> We're not. We don't stink that badly. Um, I hope not. I can't speak for a resby. Well, he can't speak for himself either. I can't speak worse than my internet. There you are. There you are. Good. I know you're alive because I can see you on the on the on the uh, comments. So, 
Can you hum some crash test dummies for us? Uh, mm, that's that's literally the chorus to one of their songs. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, Silent Topher, Silent Topher, a couple of times posted the uh, phone number. There's a phone number you can call, and it'll play Smash Mouth's All Star on repeat. <laughs> and he, he he said that was our call-in show number a couple of times. Okay. <laughs> it's a pretty good prank, but he's still a sad little man. <laughs> yes, he is. So, Rusby, any any questions as we get ready to uh, to let Doctor Clark? It's still early evening out in the. You know, he'll probably read three books before he goes to bed. He's got all these hours left in the day. But uh, any questions for the for the doctor? Um, no, I just regret that I wasn't able to contribute more. Um, our listeners may disagree with that, but, um, and now you sound fantastic. This is, it's a very stupid night. Um, your your neighbors must've been streaming, uh, uh, Netflix and then they finally quit. and, And so now you have some bandwidth. Well, we had, we had an almost storm. Uh, in that we watched the thunder go all the way around us, um, but it it never actually came. So I I but it was apparently serious. So um, I'm not sure if that could have had an effect on it. But um, I had a whole like I didn't even tell Chortles I was going to do a whole pirate impersonation when we started, and um, well, we all saw how that went. Well, here's another tidbit I forgot to mention: the original peg leg. It was, uh, it was, uh, his name was Jean de Clerc, Leclerc. So it could have been you one of your, get, you can't get this info anywhere else. Uh, Jean Leclerc really could have been the, Clark's a Clark. Your Clarks could have come from Jean Leclerc. Uh, we could have Claire. I'm sure they would say yeah, my, my wife, my wife speaks fluent French and I, I speak uh, Pepe Le Pew French, <laughs> but so, but this guy, speaking of, speaking of cancel, yeah, yeah. Culture. Jean, yeah, Jean, yeah, me Le, too. Jean Leclerc, Leclerc, uh, he was the head uh, French pirate, and the guy we were talking about earlier, Jacques Dessor, was his lieutenant. Uh, Jacques Lesor's nickname was um, L'Ange Exterminateur, the Exterminating Angel. Yeah. But the guy he worked for, Leclerc, um, he was the original peg leg pirate. His nickname was Jean de Bois, and that means leg of wood. So uh, the original peg leg pirate from whom all other fictional peg leg pirates descended was, was a French Huguenot. Oh, very good. So there you go. It's cool to be a Calvinist, no matter what Nathan Rager says. <laughs> Yo. Yo ho, yo ho! A Presby's life for me. That's right. There you go. Well, there, there, there is a certain notorious figure who has um, made use of uh, piratical language or the adjective piratical. So there, probably some places we don't want to go with that. Yeah, I don't even. I don't. I've missed who you're talking about there. The mullah of Moscow. Oh, okay, okay. That's right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, he's got the. Skull and crossbones and everything, yeah. Invoked, yeah, when he's uh, when he's not smashing fire pots or setting fire to defenseless grass. And he's um, cast himself as a as a 
a new pirate. Well, I did. I I had him in mind when I said, you know, some people uh, break flower pots and some people, you know, send forty Jesuits to the bottom of the Caribbean. So, <laughs> who, who's tough? Who's tougher? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it it would be fascinating to see like a um, uh, master and commander reboot based on uh, Huguenot pirates. I mean, that would that would be great. So, would they sing the imprecatory psalms as they went into uh, went into combat? Phil Pockrit <laughs> says, "I knew a man with a wooden leg named Smith." And Sylvia asked, "What was the name of his other leg?" You <laughs> <laughs> go, Sylvia. <laughs> Arr, that's right, funny, there, Sylvia. Uh, we well, we, ha- we have quite the bon- we have we have a merry bunch of. Marry men and women. So. Yeah, I feel. I think you're gonna have to one. You know, what, walk the plank. Yeah, I did read that 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 probably never happened. Uh, you didn't walk the plank. I, I, actually, I, I've been reading a lot about pirates this week. It's a little out of character for me. I should have interviewed you about pirates. Yeah. Well, just so the listener knows that uh, he, uh, he said he wanted to talk about pirates. Uh, uh, Huguenot pirates, and I said, I, I don't know anything about Huguenot pirates, and I won't know anything in time for this show. So, no, and I said, That's all the better. Yeah. So much the better. Well, Resby, since your uh, connection is suspect, I'll go ahead and say goodnight to everyone tonight. We'll thank Dr. Clark for joining us. Uh, any Anything you want to promote? Uh, publications, events, clothing lines? Lifestyle brands. <laughs> Lifestyle brands. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I mean, you know, everything you need to know about me is at heidelblog.net. Heidelblog.net. And um, you can find me on Twitter. And if they throw me off of Twitter, I'm on I'm on Parler. Or Parlay, sorry. I'm on Parlay for the time being. Yeah, par- Parlay well, sounds sort of piratical. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, uh, but everything of consequence is at, is at uh, heidelblog.net. All right, Resby, say good night to everyone. Good night to everyone. Don't be an Erdman. Right. I heard a preacher telling us on the downward road to hell, believe me, brother, and made me see the light. So I fell right down on bending knees, said, Lord, just hear this sinner, please. Said, save me, Lord. He did right then and there. Said, friend, I want you to know him too. What he did for me, he'll do for you. He'll give you joy and peace beyond compare. Get thee behind me, Satan. Oh, oh boy, you better get out of my way. Get thee behind me, Satan. I'm going to fall right down upon my knees and pray. So I let him down to a vacant store. And we both knelt down upon the floor. And I raised my face toward heaven with a prayer. Said, Lord, this man's been a mean old soul. Said, wash him clean and make him whole. We could hear them angels singing in the air. Well, he arose with tear-stained eyes and raised his hands up toward the sky and shouted, Hallelujah, I've been saved today. Amen. He looked like a man raised from the dead. I declare there's a halo around his head. He started out singing on his way. Get thee behind me, Satan. Oh, boy, you better get out of my way. Satan, I'm gonna fall right down upon my knees and pray.